Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Errol Dobler is the creator and author of Ice Cold Leader, Leading from the Inside Out. He teaches this methodology on business to leaders around the world. He's developed this methodology through the experiences as a United States Naval officer, where he served as a surface warfare officer and Navy SEAL. And through his years of working with the FBI, where he was awarded the FBI's second highest award, the Shield of Bravery, he's one of the few people in the world that has served with the distinction of surface warfare officer, SEAL, and as an FBI special agent and FBI SWAT operator. But there's much more to this man than just a guy that knows how to pull a trigger. This conversation is going to enlighten many of you to the importance of not only cold exposure, but exposing yourself to things that make you stronger and find the truth within you. Thank you for being here today. It's an honor to have you. This book, Ice Cold Leader, tremendous. So much great stuff in there. I love that you come in and you talk about how I got here because the backstory is important. The origin story is important. But then you go through all these different ideas. And you even mentioned the concept of resistance. Is that from Stephen Pressfield's experience as well? Yeah, you know, it, it is. It is to a degree. I, I obviously read... You know, I love that book by Stephen Pressfield. Oh, yeah. um, and it was it was something I had in my mind anyway, right? And and what is this resistance? You're doing the things you know you're supposed to be doing. And then I read his book. I'm like, well, I can't use the word resistance because he did. And I'm like, yes, I can. It's yes. just a word. <laughs> to use it. So it really, it validated uh, a lot of what I had previously thought. And yeah. then... I just got over it. Like, it's just a word. He doesn't own the word. He just did a great job with the word. And and I think yeah. I can I can build on that as well. So, and, you know, the other thing is, it's, uh, again, the, the resume is great. But I appreciate you caveating that, you know, pulling the trigger and investigating in the FBI and all that stuff is cool. We could sit here and tell war stories all day. And and it'll be great. And people will love it. But it's it was only really a means to an end for me to get to this point, to say what was happening in my mind, body, and spirit that allowed me to do those things and then really dig those things out and help people in really any aspect of their lives. So it's it's that's kind of the, the gist of it, right? And of course, the backstory is very important about how we got this methodology, because I believe the backstory validates what I recommend to people, because we get people telling us all the time, do these things, right? Like we talked about. But how do you know? How do you know it'll work? And my backstory, to a large degree, validates it's it's a fact. It will work. So appreciate that that caveat to the uh, the trigger puller in, intro. <laughs> and that's the truth. I mean, the people that I know that have operated at very high levels, there is a tremendous amount of depth to them. There is so much like 
they're so robust because in order to get to the point where you can express it the way that you are in a way that's very not just eloquent but a way that's like reproducible and you've done it with many people that's where you can see if this is true or not there's Mm -hmm. a million people out there that say this is what i did to do whatever and it's like well that may be just like a survivorship bias. maybe that guy happened to do it in spite of all the stupid shit that he did to get to that place you're showing us like listen and if you've been in the military some of it will sound familiar this idea of process of planning is important Yep. The capacity to keep the vision important, more important than the actual plan, because when the plan falls apart, once we start taking contact, now how do we adapt? Now how do we use contingencies? And again, in the entrepreneurial world, especially today, that could not be more true. Well, the, the planning part is people eat it up because what what we what we know is people don't know how to plan, and that and that's fine. Planning is really hard, and even if you do know how to plan, it still takes discipline to sit there and plan. Yes. Whether it's a quick plan in your head or whether it's a big overview of your company strategy for the year. And people will call me and say, look, we've, we've got to learn this planning thing. And I said, that's fine. But you have to learn the stuff before it. it. It is a process that I teach because if you are planning for the wrong thing or if you're planning for the wrong reason, if you are emotionally charged and you are angry and you're acting on that anger without consideration, and now you're planning something to validate your anger, well, your planning process is a waste of time because you're planning for the wrong thing. But yeah, it it is amazing how poorly people plan and then how poorly people recognize why they're planning for what they're planning for. And it's usually some emotionally charged issue a lot of times. And that's a great point, right? We see the CEO that's at the very top Maybe he's very detached from his C-suite executives, very far detached from the front line, the guys that are on the ground. And so this plan that he has in his mind may be unnecessarily convoluted, maybe grandiose. And we know that complexity is the enemy of execution. So being able to get in there, like you said, the stuff prior to the planning, what's really important? Why are we doing this? Why is this metric? Because how many people do we see that they attach this to an artificial metric? that is maybe not realistic or maybe that's not what they should be chasing in the first place. Yeah. To stay on that string with the CEOs up there and he's got these grandiose ideas, a lot of times those are emotionally driven ideas as well. Let everybody know how smart I am. Let everybody know this big vision I've got. Now let's all plan for this big vision. And big visions are great. They are important. We need to have them. But how do do we say this? They are a vision that is going to have many, many layers underneath it where people who are executing your grand vision, okay, aren't really seeing it. And so what does that mean? If the big CEO is so consumed with his own greatness and how smart he is and his big great, his or her big great ideas, that is an emotionally charged vision towards your own ego and is that the right thing we're planning for, right? Is that the right thing we're planning for? Maybe it will be, but I think if it is, you're going to get lucky because I see it all the time. They've got somebody built their great company and now they're going to go do something else. Mm -hmm. And you just can't figure out why this one's not working. That's because you may have gotten lucky on the first one. This big ego-driven thing you're doing just seemed to work out for one reason or another, which happens and look, I'll take that, I guess, <laughs> if it's gonna if it's gonna keep me financially secure. But 
when you can't repeat it, it's because you don't, you didn't have a process. You didn't know why that thing you did worked. And you didn't realize that there was probably a lot of emotions and a lot of self-aggrandizement and and ego involved in that. It's that's just not going to cut it for this thing you're trying to do. I just recently had a conversation with Nick Lavery and we were both sort of reflecting on that when you work with a big company and you look under the hood and then you say, how are you guys able to do like, how do you make money? Yeah. It's like <laughs> there's there's not even control chaos. It's just like this, their answer is create more chaos and maybe we can find other things within that. And you're shaking your head and well, you're actually, yeah, you're you're smiling well, yeah, because it's the same thing. It it is the same thing. It's funny. When I was in um when I was at Bud SEAL training, my swim buddy was a guy named Jim Randall, and he was a Marine before he went came to the Navy. And he he was killed, you know, many years ago. He was a great friend of mine. But anyway, we we were just talking and I was in the surface Navy before Bud. So we were like kind of old guys. We had experience yep. and all that stuff. And he said something that I've never forgotten because he was in the first Gulf War and he, he goes, you know, I marvel sometimes at the United States ability to execute war because we can't do anything right. And I don't, he, was, he literally said, he goes, I don't know how we do war. And so as I, you know, fast, I just thought it was funny at the time. And it just always stuck with me. Like, how, how do we? Like, the military, you can't, you can't, without 15 pieces of approval, how do we execute war? And to your point, when I started doing this, you know, leadership consulting and working with big companies, which I, you know, I've kind of found I don't really love working with those big companies because I listen to what's happening. And I literally think to myself, how do you make $1? I don't understand how you make any money. Your priorities are constantly changing. Yes. You are not executing to completion on anything. Right. And, so the boss comes in and just might comment on, oh, wow, you know, I've always enjoyed blue paint on the wall. Anyway, let's get to work. The next thing you know, everybody's got this big initiative to paint the room blue. <laughs> I just, you know, and I work a lot with the middle managers in those really big companies. When I talk worldwide companies that have, you know, a couple million people in them. And they just really can't get anything done. And and it's hard to work in that capacity. Like all I can say is, look, you can only influence what you can influence. So influence you have a team, influence your team. If the big boss comes down at some point and blows everything up, make your case, make it logically. That's the reality of your situation. You're working for a behemoth. You just have to get on board with that. Yep. You you have to get on board with it and make peace with it, or move or, or leave. Yeah, move or leave. Else. And that's the other thing, right? We talk about cultural fits. And, you know, that's a big word that's a term that's thrown around. And when I hear people say that, I go, really, what's your culture? That that person's not a fit. And they, they can never answer. It's just, I didn't like them. But when I'm working with these folks in these really big companies where they are frustrated because they can't get anything done, that is exactly what I say. I, I say, look, here's, here's the culture. It's changing things. It's not completing things. It's somebody just throwing a monkey wrench in. And I said, that's what it is, for better, for worse. And to your point, Marcus, I say you either need to get on board with that and have peace with it and then just move on and do the best you can, which is fine. Or you need to start looking somewhere else if it's eating you up inside because it's not changing. And that's a great example. As you say, it was the same thing in, in the army when I was in the light infantry. It was like 
we can't even get organized to do bivouac of a layout. You know, how the hell? <laughs> but again, what is it a testament to? The individuals together on the team, the leadership within that team, the desire to care for that man next to you, that understanding that, man, if I don't, if I'm not squared away, the guy next to me, like he may die. He may die yep. anyway, but it's different if I'm the one that's actually the, the causation of that. And I remember my squad leader telling me, he was like, the guy that's screwed up is not the one that dies in combat. It's the other guy that's trying to help him square him away. Like when he stands up in the middle of it, you pull him down and you're the one that catches the, the yeah. like we have to understand that. And if we can anticipate that weak link in the chain, it helps us not only overcompensate, but it helps them understand the importance of that, that planning, that preparation and the commitment of execution. You know, and even just to your example, as, as we stand the thread with a big company and how hard it is for them to get things done, the message I try to bring folks in that situation is, but you still have a small team. And even if your team is huge, you still have a small number of people directly underneath you who you need to be working closely with. You can always break it down to something smaller. And, and just that, right, you can't eat the elephant in one bite. You got to, you know, take little bites. It's the same thing if you're in that situation. There's always hope, but you know, to your point, there's always something smaller to break down. There's always somebody right next to you that you can help move along and, and, and get on the same page with to make it to make it a pal- palatable situation. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that I think are very open, but what's the biggest misconception that you see consistently repeated about leadership? There's a lot. First thing is we don't need to invest in leadership. We invest in technology, we invest in marketing, we invest in sales, we invest in all these things. And, you know, one of the challenges I face when, I don't face it too much anymore, but, hey, Errol, you don't know really anything about our industry. How can you help us? And I said, I don't need to know anything about your industry. I'm not a business consultant. I'm a leadership consultant. And what I do know is, whatever that thing you're talking about, it's not going well. Okay, and that is going to come back down to human behavior to fix it. So this notion, everybody talks a big game about leadership and and investing in leadership, and and they don't execute. I don't know if that's a misconception. That's just what I see. And when you ask somebody, what do you think about leadership? You get a lot of different answers, and that's fine. But the answers I get a lot of time are very convoluted. So People do not spend a lot of time thinking about leadership. So the misconception is I'm a leader, but I can't define leadership. I'm a leader, but I don't spend any time during my day thinking about leadership things. I think about I've got to get to this meeting and we've got this project. And I'm not looking at it in the framework of a leader. I'm looking at it in the framework of a check the box, move on to the next, because you know we've got all these things. So again, I don't know if it's answering the question around misconception, um, but it's what I observe. And when you very quickly point that out to somebody who I work with, I work with them because they want to get better. And they'll, they'll say, you're right. I don't spend any time during the day thinking about leadership. What's my leadership move? One of the things I ask people, like, well, what's your leadership move for that? They're like, I, ooh, I, I don't know. What do you mean? You know what I mean. You just don't know because you don't think about it. And now we've learned something, right? We've just learned that the leader is not thinking about leadership <laughs> ever. And I think it's also that it's got to be something 
very dramatic, right? Oh, I, I give this big speech, right? I'm very, I'm very motivational, whatever it is. And that's not it either. Confidence motivates people, right? Um, leading people motivates people. And, and I think the most important thing is that people just need to be aware of how they're feeling and what's happening around them. In my mind, leadership is awareness. Awareness of how you're feeling, awareness of how the other people are feeling, and then awareness of what that what actions those feelings are driving. And then you can start determining what adjustments need to be made. So again, I don't know that I fully answered your question around misperceptions. I just kind of went to here's what I'm here's what I'm seeing. And and it's pretty simple. People just don't think about leadership. I absolutely agree. There's many people that are in a leadership position or have leadership responsibilities that are, like you said, maybe not very well defined. There's no specific metric. There's no deadlines. There's no expectations. And then what does that allow them to do? That gives them these parameters to be in a very reactionary, very firefighting kind of mentality. And there are times when that happens. I'm not saying that it doesn't. Right. I know that life happens and, and we have to adapt. Having said that, if we go out without any intention, that means we lose all of our attention to anything we're trying to do. There's nothing driving yeah. us. There's no factor. There's no. And again, if we talk about mission, we talk about these ideas, we talk about culture. But again, even in, within like mission statements, we see how much time and how convoluted or either unnecessarily specific that doesn't answer the question or so vague to be inclusive of everything. Again, it's that idea of if everything's a priority, yeah. nothing's a priority. Who's your client? What do we do? Everyone's our client. We do everything. Well, then you're not going to yep. do anything well. Yeah. There's a lot of what you just said there that we could unpack for you know hours and hours. But to keep it more specific, right? The clear mission, right? What are you trying to accomplish? No, and, and here's the thing. I have a mission every time I walk into my house, right? What am I trying to accomplish here? Now, I may have to look and observe and be aware of what's happening before I define my mission, right? I've got three young kids. Uh, me and my wife work the business together. If I'm gone for a week, which happens a lot, mm -hmm. and I roll into the door, I'm aware first and foremost, I'm walking into something and I'm going to need to have to figure out what my mission is to make things good. That's leadership. Now, what is my plan? My mission, there's chaos. Okay, my mission is, to help my wife with the chaos, start taking it away from her. It's coming from the kids. That's my mission. Yes. All right. Get yes. her a breath. Okay. Come in and, and, and have some impact and it could change every time. And, and that's really all leadership is right. It's an awareness of what's happening. And, and I mentioned, what am I, what am I going to decide to do? Um, I had a greater point that I was going to make that your audience is missing out on now, some real gems, but it'll come back to me. But, you know, when we talk about what is missing, we have these zero parameters, so everything's a fire drill. Mm -hmm. I don't typically reference sports just because I don't, but I heard a commentator one time say something that was great, and it was in reference, I was watching a football game, it was in reference to one of these quarterbacks who runs around and, you know, just, you know, just is always running around making things happen, whatever it is. And his point was, look, that's great, but that's got to start, though, from a place of direction. Nobody gets into the huddle, and this was his point. Nobody gets into the huddle and says, broken play on three, break, <laughs> right? Yep. There's always a plan, 
our plan is to run the ball to the right. Oh, wait a second. Somebody dropped the ball. Now I got to pick it up and do something else. And that's that's where we miss a lot, right? People are like, well, Errol, we got to plan for everything. I'm like, yes, you have to plan for everything because what happens if everything goes exactly the way you want? What happens if everything is lined up and you don't have a plan to take advantage of this good fortune? Well, shame on you. When you have a plan and things go wrong, it's fine. You were heading in a direction and now you know what went wrong and you're going to be able to decide and figure out a very targeted adjustment that you need to make because you're operating from a place of a plan. And that can be, again, with anything, walking into your house, how you're going to present yourself at the checkout line, the grocery store, right? Recognizing how I'm feeling. I'm in a bad mood and I see the the cashier is chatting everybody up and I, I am not down with this. Well, here you go. What's your plan for that? I, I love that. And it all comes back to what we were saying before we hit record. All leadership is self-leadership. All awareness. Uh, until you have that self-awareness, you can't have situational awareness, which is important for the plan, important for the environment, for VUCA, for anything that we're going through to try to get to this next place. And if we if we don't expect it, it, it can catch us sideways. But if we do expect it and we say, listen, this is par for the course, we're going to face some sort of resistance. Back to that resistance with the capital R, I capitalize adversity with an A for the same reason that you mentioned in, in your book and the same reason Pressel talks about it. It feels like there is this, it's it's this entity. It's always out there. It's always in its in route yeah. to us in some capacity. Always. And the time that we are not prepared for it is when it's going to feel the most devastating. Yeah, so. uh, it, it, it absolutely is. And that's why I kind of titled the book Leading from the Inside Out just for that point. Because yes. if an awareness of where you are personally, whether it's in the moment, uh, whether it's a greater thing like, yeah, you know, gosh, I've got anger issues, right? That's a greater issue. Or in the moment, I'm feeling really angry. Your decision-making process and the results are going to be random. There's going to be a flip of the coin. Okay? And your ability to adapt and adjust is going to be non-existent. It's just, it doesn't exist. But most important, if you don't possess the ability to do that for yourself, as you said, you cannot do it for other people. You cannot look at somebody and say, okay, that thing, you just turned in this awful report, whatever it is, right? And this is garbage. Redo it. Because I have the ability to look inside myself and say, how am I feeling? And how do I react when I feel that way? And say, you know what? Boy, when I'm sad, I, I am inattentive. I can't articulate things. And now I got this report from the person. So I'm not going to say, Marcus, redo this. This is, come on, this is lazy. I'm going to say, is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, everything's okay. Sure, because this is not usually what you turn in. Are you sure everything's okay? Well, you know, I just found out my sister was diagnosed with cancer, and I, you know, but I'm okay. Slow down, right now. The now the report doesn't mean anything, okay? Now, right? But then to say, okay, now we're having a real conversation. How are you doing? What do you truly need? If you think you can do that for somebody, whether it's your your wife, your husband, your kid, or your employee, or anybody, a stranger on the street. If you think you could do that for them without the ability to do that for yourself, you're lying. You can't. It's impossible. You have to have it inside first. So yeah, self-leadership. And what does that mean? For me, it means an awareness of where we are emotionally all the time. 
right? An awareness of where our head is, our heart is, our spirit is, because that's going to drive everything we do. That's going to be the aura we give off. And then we can start deciding. Once again, anger is an easy one. I am feeling angry right now. I am I'm rip shit. And I'm about to go into this meeting with my team. And this is not the vibe I need to give off because I'm mad at something else. Okay, great. Now make an adjustment. You have a place to make an adjustment from. I can go in and I can say, hey, team, look, I've got some personal stuff going on. I am furious. When you feel it, understand it's not at you. Okay, so just because we got to get this meeting in. But that's where I am right now. So don't take it personally. Let's go. That's enough. (laughs) That's enough. People can get behind that and go, okay, he's not mad at us. You know, I hope he's okay, but whatever. Uh, it's so again, just the the point of self leadership. That's that's where I believe it is, and everything is driven off of that. Everything. And I think, that, like you said, anger is a very common mechanism to to grab onto, especially if we've been in environments where I think anger gets a bad rap. There is a time when anger is good. There is a time that we're in other positions where we have nothing else to burn for fuel to drive, and we have to get there. And sometimes anger is it, but it should be like a 90-10. It should be like 90% of the time I'm trying to do all these other things when everything else has not worked and I have nothing else and my back's against the wall, grip my teeth, lean in and say, okay, let's go. But it is corrosive. It's not conducive to something that is sustainable for us, for our people, for our mission. But at the same time, the people that I see that are caught by it so often, the ones that are afraid to acknowledge its existence. They try to, right. Right? Right. they stay in right. denial. They're trying to force it down. I can't be angry yeah. right now. It's like, actually, you need to be angry right now. You need to just not act from a place of anger. And that's where they I, can't I, have the separation. And I would, I would take it to the next level. In my view, right, when I say things like the emotions drive everything, you, it all starts with emotion on a, on a macro level and a micro level. And you recognize your anger and now you make decisions. I'm angry. And you say, and I'm used to act on my anger. Cool. Because here's where you win. You've just made a conscious decision. I can't guarantee you that I can always help you make the right decision. I can guarantee you that I can always help you make a conscious decision. Now, so I've got this anger. We'll just use the team meeting. It's easy. Actually, you know, home, whatever it is, right? Kids. And I say, I am going to act on this anger. However you choose to act on the anger. Now, here's what you get to do. You get to look at the result. And you go into your team meeting, you act on your anger consciously, you end the meeting, and then you get a call from HR, these three people are quitting, you're being sued from this one, so on and so forth. Now, what did you learn? You learned that anger is not an emotion you can trust. When you feel anger, you have now just learned, consciously acting on it, that's not a good one for me. I've got to do something different with that. And that's the beauty of inside out, right? And that's the beauty of of these emotions and things like anger. And when you do it that way, you'll naturally know, I I can't keep acting on this anger. It gets old. The results will not continue to come back positive. Because, right, I might come into the team meeting and say, we are all down. Nobody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. I'm a little mad. It's time. It's time to let them go. It's time to show this anger. You will probably get good results acting consciously on that anger. But that doesn't mean it's the thing that you need to keep doing, right? And that's the beauty of this this kind of process, this internal out 
type of thing because you might start to press it. Like, oh, I get good results when I act on my anger. Yeah, the third time you do it, you're going to start noticing you're not getting those good results. But you've just learned something, right? Conscious action based on an awareness of your emotions and anger is the killer. You just you just start randomly acting on stuff. Again, random results. Yeah, the, I always sit, tell my people that emotions assassinate the truth. And so that capacity to step back, detach, breathe, take a second, kind of let it run through you. And now it's not stuck in there. And now this gives you the ability to have that presence to to really see mm-hmm. what's going on, to to truly have the capacity to go through UDA or whatever else you're doing. And I've seen so many people, people that are very high performers, people that are excellent at what they do, because we we know plenty of people that are top tier operators in the military that when they're in the teams, that's their thing. That's their identity. That's who they are. But when they transition out, it's very easy for them to fall into that mediocrity, just like a civilian, which is what is happening in the world today. But the people that I see that are continually elevating, they've gone through some sort of adversity, some sort of hardship in their life. And they've used that as their like pivot point, that reflection, that catalyst. And I believe, I mean, your, your book is tremendous, but it felt like the TBI for you was the most insidious form of adversity. So can you explain to us kind of that process, go yeah. through some of that and then give us sort of, because that led to this ice cold mentality, breathing, Wim Hof, all these sort of exposures that you have. And TBIs for those that are not familiar, it's a traumatic brain injury. And we in the military run into them all the time. Yeah. I just want to circle back real quick on the identity portion, mm-hmm. right? Guys in the teams, right? And then they leave the teams and it's really military in general, probably athletics, any, you know, anything like that. And what I try to get across to folks a lot of time is be careful what you hit your identity to, because look at it this way. If it can be taken away from you, then don't do that. Don't put your identity to that thing. What, what do I mean? I was a SEAL. I loved it. It's who I was. I lived it, ate it, breathed it. Right up until the moment I almost got killed and I was no longer a SEAL because I got medically discharged. Now what? Right? FBI agent, right? Same thing. Okay. I, I left the FBI because I was like, culture, right? I, you either can accept it or not. And I couldn't anymore. So I left. And now what am I? This is a tough example. But it's it's personal and it's true. A parent. Well, what's your identity? I'm a parent. Well, you know, my parents lost my sister to cancer. And objectively speaking, they're not parents anymore. Right? Now they we had other kids, but you, you see my point? I do. Now I, I would never say that to my parents because they'd be like, no, she, she's always my daughter. So I get it, but but you understand my point in a in a very extreme example. So be careful of what you identify with because if it can be taken away, you've identified with the wrong thing. Now, what can't be taken away? I can be a great leader anywhere. I can represent excellence in everything I do, no matter what it is. That Nobody can take that away from you because no matter what you're doing, that's what you represent. For me, the traumatic brain injury, so that happened back in the, in the 90s, right? I had two major head injuries, right? Two big falls while operating both of them probably should have taken my life. Now, back then, I don't even know that TBI was an expression. Traumatic brain injury was even a thing anybody was talking about. Right. Um, I'm sure it wasn't. 
and and for better or for worse, how we operated back then, you know, both times I got up and walked away. And the first time I was like, let's finish training. We'll get this, I'll get this looked at this thing later. Don't worry about it. The spirit's good. Right? There's nothing wrong with the spirit. It's just not smart. And we're better now. But what happened was I started to see changes in my behavior. I really started to see struggling with emotions. Now, I've always been a very emotional guy. Emotional meaning enthusiastic, mm-hmm. passionate, right? Uh, I'm not uh, I'm not a quiet guy. You know, I don't lead quietly. I lead very vocally. So people would see that passion. and. Early on, it was like, oh, Errol got angry. Well, he's just a passionate guy. So he just got angry. He's passionate. And I remember thinking to myself, no, this is not who I am. I don't, I've usually got a better handle on it. And it got progressively more challenging for me. And that's when I had to start. Now, and again, these head injuries, medical discharge, they didn't even acknowledge my head injuries. They're like, well, you lost use of your arm and all that stuff. You can't operate anymore. You're gone. So the adversity was adversity I was facing without even knowing it. And I had to start this process of the emotions, just what we've kind of talked about. How am I feeling right now? And I've realized lately that when I feel that way, this is how I act. So now I'm aware of the intuitive action on the emotion. Then I had to say, okay, that's not the right action. I have to act this way because I can't act that way because that's no good. And now what's my plan? And that's all I did. That's all I would do. And when I did it, regardless of how I was feeling, I would make a good decision. When I didn't do it, when I forgot that process, I always made a bad decision. Okay. Or I wasn't sure why something worked out. So I did that for the better part of 20 years. Now, without realizing that I was, I I had a brain injury. Right. There was a part of my brain that I know now. The part of my brain was the part that got injured was the part of my brain that regulates your emotional process. Yes. So it made perfect sense to me in hindsight. And so that's what we talked earlier about validating my process. That was the validation because the doctor ultimately said, Your brain injury is so bad that at best you should be destitute. Best. He goes, more realistically, you should have been one of those 22 veterans a day who's committed suicide. And he said, walk me through this process. And then that's when we got into the cold exposure also, right? And I explained all these things to him. And again, I, I think I've gone off on a tangent. I've kind of forgotten what the initial point of your question was. Oh, no, it was. Yeah, it was, it was, it was the adversity. Um, so for me, the adversity, I didn't know I had it. But I was fighting through it because I, I felt I had no other choice. Now, when I started my business, you know, you start a leadership consulting, you've got to be able to articulate very clearly what you stand for. And I kind of walked through, okay, when was I really good? When was I at my best in stressful situations? Because I, I, I did a good job in stressful situations. It was the non-stressful situations, right? Out on town, and I didn't always do so well. Um, but that's because I wasn't thinking. But anyway, I said, oh, it's this same process that I go through to get through my day. And that's really what I did in those stressful situations, recognized, acknowledged how I was feeling, knew my intuitive action on that feeling, had to make a quick determination. Is that the right behavior? Nope. What's the right behavior here? And now what's my plan? 
So when I got diagnosed with the traumatic brain injury, got the scan of the brain, not the CT scan or the MRI, which don't measure brain injury, it was it was scary and at the same time fulfilling. Because when he said, you didn't even know you had this. How did you survive it? How did you beat it? And, and then now let me give you this non-pharmaceutical treatment to heal your brain, intranasal insulin, right? No pharmaceuticals, which is a different story. So yeah, your adversity and my adversity are true adversities, but different. For as awful as it sounds to not, to be paralyzed from the neck down, you can't even imagine what goes through your mind, but there it was for you. And so you, I did the reverse. I was, I was working through the adversity without even knowing that I was going through adversity. And then in hindsight, as it's punched out the other side, we both come out the other side and say, look, here's how you get through some adversity. Here's how I got through it. Here's how you can get through it. It's just that I spent 20 years getting through it and then got the gift, right? You talk a lot about that, right? What's the gift? The gift of knowing you were injured. You survived it. Now you can truly tell people, here's how you can get through it. Because I did, and I didn't even know it. So that's my monologue. And that's that's so powerful because as we see, adversity is unique to each individual. It's it's different, but it's still the human. So it's still the same. And it's not a contest. It's not a competition. Absolutely. It's not a competition. So people hear your story, right? I heard your story. I'm like, oh my God, that's about the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. I could, I don't know that I would be able to do that, right? Somebody hears my story, 20 years, How? Do, that's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. It's not a competition because your adversity might be, I struggle with patience for my kids and I'm not raising them the way I want. It's still adversity. It meets us where we are. It doesn't, it just so happens our stories really just smash you in the face. People will listen to it and go, Ooh, okay, how did you get through that? But guess what? I could use what you did, Marcus, to help me with my patients and better raise my kids because that's my adversity. And that's one of the things that I really want to stress to folks as they listen to these things. These are interesting stories, but it's not a competition. You don't judge what you think your adversity is because it's just your adversity and it's not helping you, right? So, you know, I think that's an important point. It absolutely is. And and again, the, the way that you choose to face the adversity is everything. The way you conduct yourself in the face of adversity is an indication of how you will lead the kind of husband, father, parent, teammate, member of your community, human being. That's That's your litmus test. That dictates the way you'll do everything else. So be aware of those things and then also give yourself that grace because I've had people say what, what we're talking about. You do a keynote and people come up and say, Marcus, I haven't been through what you've been through, but dot, dot, dot. Don't say that that's insignificant or don't say that I'm only this right. or I'm just this. That That's not what it is. Because so many times, again, like with yours, it was insidious. You didn't see it coming. It was invisible. You couldn't see or smell or taste it or touch it. However, right. there are people that are living in adversity right now and the adversity that they have is complacency, mediocrity. Yeah. Yes. Like the same thing, lack of like, they're just trying to find artificial pacification, social media, empty calories, empty relationships, empty conversations. And frankly, that's, it's almost more brutal than anything else physically that we can go through. 
It is because it's harder. It, you know, look for you, right? I'm going to start walking again. I'm going to get used to these arms, right? That is, that is clear, right? For me now, giving this message to people based on what I know I went through and how I got through it, that is clear. Punching your way out of mediocrity, right? I'm not bad. I'm not great. I'm surviving. That's, that is no small thing. Okay. And, and to recognize that. And, you know, when you say the, you know, how we respond to adversity is a measure of who we are, right? Yes. But then here's where I like to jump in and say, okay, but then how? How? That's what people got to be at. Okay, how? Absolutely. Right? And the how comes back to having this process of, because in those moments of chaos, stress, and anxiety, you go to what you know instinctively, right? We know that again. That's why these military and combat examples are so clear, Mm -hmm. right? You don't have a whole lot of time to be thinking when you're being shot at. What you have is what you've drilled into yourself physically from your skills, your shooting skills and whatever else, and your mental and emotional skills. So if you are constantly recognizing the emotion inside you, if you are constantly acknowledging your intuitive action on that, and then deciding is that the right behavior. And if you are constantly then making a plan to get through the situation, that's the recipe for getting through adversity. And if you do that for everything, everything you do, whether it's an adversity or not, it's just, hey, I just want to bring my best self to this. So I need to do these things. Now it's what you do. Because if you think you are magically going to come to some clarity during the moment of adversity, then you have lost your mind. It will not happen. You have to build that muscle like everything else. And it's a it's the same way because when you go through life that way, with that awareness, getting through adversity is just another thing. It's a little tougher. There's a little more the consequences are greater for your failure, but it's still just a problem to be solved, a problem to move through and situation to move through. So that's, you know, I think that's one of the most important things, one of the very important things for adversity is to let people know, don't expect some magic pill or, you know, the angel to come on your shoulder and go, I'll guide you through this. It takes work. It takes work to be able to figure out how to do that. It does. And and just because we do it once, don't think that's it. You're going to run into a lot more. And frankly, you're laughing and, and we know it's true. Every time you want to go to another level, there's greater adversity there. And if you learn the lesson before, and then you try to skimp or you try to get around it, you try to do a shortcut, adversity punches you in the face and says, hey, you remember? You're like, yeah, I remember. Because yeah, pain- you, you took me for granted. You, you, you thought that I was, and that's the thing. That's why I, I really enjoyed the part of the discussion we've had and that we're both clearly in alignment that the adversity is yours. It's not to be judged and it will never not be there. If you're looking, even if you're not looking to be the best you can be at everything you're doing, if you're if, if that's your mindset, you're going to find adversity everywhere, in a good way, Absolutely. right? Here's how I'm here's how I'm shortchanging myself on this. Here's how I'm shortchanging the people on that. Boy, look at that situation right there. That's not helping anybody. You'll always see it. But like you said, tough part is. <laughs> When you're just sitting there in mediocrity or, quite frankly, failure, and that's become your norm, it becomes harder to see. 
And and so how do you see it? You've got to start with this, this inside out type of process, like being honest, acknowledging, I feel like a failure. I feel like just one big piece of shit. You know what? I've recently, so I journal, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, and I try to make it a daily habit and two weeks will go by. I'm like, I have journals, right? So again, we do the best. And recently I had a little bit of a downturn, right? And, and we talk about got to put positive stuff into the, you know, into the, into the air, your energy, it'll come back. And I agree with all that, but sometimes you've got to let it rip on yourself a little bit. And I wrote, I just felt like, whether it's true or not, I felt like I had gotten to a level of mediocrity. I wasn't punching through. My discipline perhaps wasn't there. And I spent two days writing, you're a piece of shit. You're lazy. You're not doing this. Because I couldn't any longer start telling myself positive vibes, positive vibes. I needed to get down to it and say, okay, here's how you feel about yourself right now. I was a little nervous to do it. Because I'm like, what happens if this whole universe thing is actually dead set? And I put this negative stuff out. What am I going to get back? I said, what? But I can't, I can't lie about it anymore. Put it out there two days, beating myself up. And I said, okay, that's enough. <laughs> okay, let's go. So what's the point? There's the mediocrity there that I was dealing with. And until you start acknowledging it and how it's making you feel, you won't you won't take the steps to get out of it. You just, you won't, you can't inside out. And that's the truth, right? Lots of times it takes adversity to wake us up from that slumber of mediocrity. And back to your point, we have to accept it on adversity's terms. We have to let go of what we think it should be or what's supposed to happen or how we should. It's like, no, it doesn't matter. Adversity doesn't give a shit about your opinion. And it's going to continue to demonstrate that to you. So until you accept it for what it is, and say, this is not what I like. Again, writing down that you're a piece of shit was the thing that that smacked you from that slumber. And here's the yeah. other part. I see people that, again, like you said, oh, we have to have all this positive vibes and all that stuff. When I was in a bed and I couldn't move, I knew lying to myself about, oh, I'm going to do this. I, I didn't need to hear that shit. I didn't have room for it. I'm not going to do that to myself. But what we have to do is there's the, the positive vibes way up high. There's a negative spiral. And our goal is just to get clicked back into neutral, get closer to neutral, get closer to the reality. Okay. I can lie to myself and, and, and then, say, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, please. And that's the truth. I mean, once we get back to that place of neutrality, now it's like, okay, I may not be a complete piece of shit, but I'm not, I'm under indexing on everything. And if that's the neutral place, now how can I click that slowly? incrementally into that positive thing. So again, now that inside out mentality, the ice cold leadership comes back and it, it saves us in that moment of, of hardship. Because it's, it's, it's awareness, right? You can't, you talk about the negative spiral, the downward spiral. You only go there if you're unaware that you're going there. You see it, you feel it, ah, right? But if you don't have that mindfulness, right? If you don't have that awareness, that emotional awareness, say, okay, this is bad. You still may be spiraling down, but at least you know, okay, this is bad. And and I got to figure something out. Now you're making moves based on something very specific. For me, it was, I'm I'm right. I don't care anymore. I'm right. These are all the things I feel about myself. Okay. Well, days beat myself up and now I'm tired of it. 
I'm yes. tired of the negative, right? I'm tired of it because I've, I've let it go. That's the only way you stop those things. So your, your awareness of, right, the idea, and thank you for acknowledging that. I think anybody would know that, but it's easy for you to say now on the back end of this, no, I was very positive going through that whole thing. I just knew it was going to be okay. Oh, yeah, I'll bet, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet you that those are your fleeting moments where I think it's going to be okay. And it was dominated by a boy. And you probably got hired of feeling like, oh boy, because you were so aware of it. Yep. Like, this is this is awful. I gotta, I gotta start thinking something else. <laughs> I believe it or not. Let's go. I mean, I am I in the ballpark? That that's absolutely it. Right? Because it's 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 the way people get out, diversity. That's it. We have to have that thing that stops it. It has to be that that pattern interrupt, that that catalyst that pushes us one way or the other. And that comes back to again this idea of identity. You were mentioning this idea that you know we're warriors, we're leaders, we're providers. But sometimes, like you said, there's days when that may not always be the case, where it feels like it could be stripped from us. That's how I felt when my entire physicality was ripped away from me. I was suicidal, but I couldn't even act on it. And I'm not laughing like, yes, <laughs> that is, it's an unbelievable statement. Like you were so desperate. You couldn't even act on the worst thing. And when you talk about being grateful and gifts, that's a gift. That is a gift that you couldn't actually execute what you were truly feeling, right? That I mean, so as you try to find the gratitude in things, because I, I listened to your story and, you know, I'm like, boy, how do you? How do you find gratitude in that moment? Well, through things like that. Like, I was so destitute, I wanted to commit suicide, and I couldn't. Oh, I'm pretty grateful for that now. <laughs> That's a, something to be thankful for. You probably weren't thinking that at the time. It probably pissed you off even more. That was it. But the beauty of it is that identity for me, once I came through that, was this idea of this anti-fragile mentality. This idea of, I'm, I can be an amazing learner. I can be an incredible student, which makes me a better teacher. And now that becomes mm -hmm. this self-fulfilling cycle and prophecy. But that's the the truth of it. And I think that that's where people sometimes get caught up in not being able to understand. It's like, if I choose to make my identity something that anytime I hit resistance actually strengthens me, actually makes me better, then now every time, like you said, if we see adversity around us, now, when you and I see adversity, we see opportunity everywhere that we're, that's around us. We see, wow, what, what was the, the famous staff sergeant was in battle and it's like, we're surrounded. And he was like, that's right. Those sons of bitches can't go anywhere now. Like that was the mentality is like, no matter where you fire, you're going to hit what you need. Right. And yeah. even if you go down slugging, it's this idea to say, listen, I'm going to continue to move forward in this direction. I always say that if you're on a path and you don't face adversity, you shouldn't be surprised. You should be surprised that that's probably not your path. That's probably not what you should be doing. You should be facing some sort of adversity in some capacity if you're trying to get better, if you're trying to get stronger, more resilient, financially, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it may be. And 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 all of these things, people listen to this and they get fired up like, yeah, hell yeah. But adversity you know, is the way and all that. And it's all accurate. But then again, invariably, it's okay, but how? How do I get that mindset? And in my mind, it, like we talked about, it starts with the internal emotional awareness. Because when you are aware, you will be tired of thinking that shit over and over again. Okay, you just be tired. I'm so, I'm so sick and tired of being negative. I can't even take it anymore. Only because you're aware of it. 
right? Because believe me, we have we go through. We're addicted to those emotions, right? Mm-hmm. It's literally a chemical goes from your brain to your body. And if it's, I'm just negative, you're addicted to it. You're just trying to find that negativity. But the awareness, can can I move it just into a little, we touched on ice cold leader and cold. Can I, can we, can I transition to that? When people say, okay, again, how, what are my tools? How do I practice this? Okay. Cold exposure, right? An ice bath, a cold shower. Why? Because we're so stressed. Right? We're so negative a lot of times, we don't even realize what it feels like anymore because we're just living with it. You step into a tub of cold water at 38 degrees, guess what? You are going to be reminded of what stress feels like. Right? It's an induced panic attack. That's the first thing. That cold exposure allows you to remember what true stress feels like. Next thing. Okay, I've got stress and what? Everybody talks about breathing, 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 and I am the breath person. Okay. But how do you know it works? How do you practice? Because I can sit here and do my box breathing. I can do it now. You can do it now because I know everything that it works. But if you're just sitting here listening for the first time, going, okay, box breathing and what? I don't get it. Why is that going to help me? Guess where you're going to learn how the breath helps you to calm down? In the ice bath. Okay, when you get in and your physiology goes, and then you go, okay, I have to breathe. Get the exhale. Keep it going. Concentrate on the breath. Slow it down. And now all of a sudden you're calm. You're like, holy shit, it works. Right? That's why, you know, when I say, and then again, what else is happening? Physiological. Those are the behavioral things around the cold exposure. You can... Apply that anytime, anywhere. Bookstore. I was reading a book one time, and this is after I had just started the Wim Hof method, right? So this is many years ago, and I was reading a book, and it was a, it was a combat book, and I had seen a lot of combat in 2010 as an FBI agent. I was actually attached to the 75th Ranger Regiment for combat operations, and we saw a ton of combat, and you know it was all good. I didn't really none of it bothered me. And then I'm reading this book and I realize I'm in the middle of a coffee shop and I realize I'm sweating all over the book and I'm, my hands are shaking. I'm having a panic attack as I'm reading these combat tales. And then I kind of had a double panic, like, oh my God, I'm having a panic attack. <laughs> is this what this is? I promise you, Marcus, I said, this feels familiar. Why does this feel familiar? I'm like, oh, sh- this is what it feels like every time I get to an ice bath, right? And then I was like, what do I do in an ice bath? I promise you, this is what was going through my head. I breathe. I breathe. Get the exhale out, right? Activate the vagus. And I was like, okay, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. You know, I went home. I had a meeting. The meeting went fine. I went home. I told my wife what happened. And she said, well, do you think you have PTSD? Do you think you need to go see somebody? And I said, I might have PTSD and I I have no problem, as you've now seen in the last hour, I have no problem expressing myself or talking. I'm good. I'll talk about my favorite color all day to a stranger. And I said, and I'll go see somebody. I said, but what are they going to try to do for me? They're going to try to figure out how to not get me a panic attack or how to come down from the panic attack. And they're going to try to give me a pill and I'm not taking a pill. Right. And I said, I'm not doing it. I said, I did it. I got through the panic attack, just breathing. And, you know, all joking aside, 
our wives are generally right most of the time, especially when it comes to our ridiculous ideas. But even she had to say, you know, you're right. Let's keep an eye on it, but you're right. So again, back to the original point. How do we, how do we set this positive mindset? How do we recognize the adversity and the stress that it creates? How do I practice that? Because I'm so caught up in my day to day. That's where I say, go to the ice bath. That is your tool to help you recognize and practice. And then the physiological part of it is that it's resetting your nervous system. So now you get a chance to leave that thing with a clear mind and clear spirit to now think about how you're thinking. So I I didn't want to, I felt like we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the cold exposure, right? You know, the ice cold leader and all that stuff. And that's just a little nutshell of execute so much of what we're talking about today. It's a tool to practice, consequence-free. Absolutely. Ice cold leader, the book, leading from the inside out. I, I cannot recommend it enough. For those of you that want to learn more about what we're doing, where would you send them? Where can we learn more about you for all the things that you're providing? You have a course, obviously the book, coaching, yeah. speaking. Where would you send them? Yeah, yeah. You know, we do, we do it all. And uh, icecoldleader.com is the easiest way place to go. Anything Ice Cold Leader, you're going to find me. Instagram, I think we're either the Ice Cold Leader or Ice Cold Leader, whatever it is. LinkedIn is my name, Errol Dobler. We're starting to ramp up the Ice Cold Leader side of that LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn and Instagram are, are my two bigger socials. And then everything about what we do and how we do it, uh, you go to the website, icecoldleader.com. And there's some incredible recommendations. Um, Wim Hof's daughter, Isabel, wrote a mm-hmm. tremendous intro. I mean, a tremendous recommendation. Mark Devine, yeah. if you don't know who Seal Fit is or who Mark Devine is, get out from underneath the rock and check your pulse. I highly recommend the book. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on and for your for your transparency. I, I think that people see leaders and they think that we're just machines that push forward. And there are times that we are. But at the same time, that does not mean that we don't give that machine um, pre-maintenance, maintenance, and then post-maintenance to give us the capacity to continue to accomplish the mission. I appreciate you having me on, Marcus. This was everything I hoped it would be. And, and more than anything, I hope your listeners got a lot out of it. They absolutely did. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.